I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slinging stuff. Am I going to get sued? Is that illegal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. It was all going so well for Will Levis. He was looking like a superstar through the first game and a half of his NFL career. People were taking victory laps all over Twitter. And then, boom, implosion on the final drive. Uh, finally executed the interception that he tried to throw two previous times on that final drive. Doesn't get the win. Pittsburgh Steelers get the win. Uh, just cementing one of the craziest opens of a season of any team in NFL history. We'll get into that. We'll get into some analytics talk. We'll get into the, uh, the general manager openings. Uh, one opening currently, multiple openings to come, presumably. And, of course, the boo-boo breakdown later in the show. And to do that is going to be, uh, to help me do that, is Trevor Sikama. How's it going, sir? Uh, much like Will Levis's performance last night, I only heard the very first part of what you said, and I'm only choosing to believe that because I am one of those people that's just taking a scouting win on Will Levis. Uh, now it, it, he's good. It's it. I'm putting a green check mark next to his name. We nailed it in the evaluation. Uh, me and uh, R.I.P. Mike Renner or P.F.F. Mike, I should say. Where did you have? In where did you have Levis? Where was he on your your rankings? Twelfth overall. I had him twelfth. Where was that in the in the QB list? Two? On the what list? On the QB rankings. Four. So I, I had I had him as QB four, but I still had him as a top. I had him as a top twelve prospect. Cause I had him at twelve overall. Okay, I, I believe the consensus, mm. which Arif Hassan keeps track of the media consensus board, had Levis around twenty five or twenty six. So the fact that I was okay. um, ahead okay. of that, I'm taking it as a dub. I'm just I'm taking it. Doesn't matter what he does from this point on. It's I, I've often said. The career doesn't matter. It's just the first just game and a half. First seven quarters is all first that matters. First seven quarters. That's all you need to count him as a scouting win. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's It's a well-known threshold, right? It's the first seven quarters to tell you all you need to know about a player's career. Correct. Anything that happens after that, not relevant. Correct. Um, yeah, look, I... I, I'm pretty sure I had Levis as my QB2 overall. So nobody is more invested in wanting to take a victory lap over Will Levis than I am. Having said that, the idiocy of people like literally being like, I've seen all I need to see after like six quarters blows my mind. Like, have you not watched football before this week? Right? Do you not understand that we've done this before, and every time we've done it before, it blows up in our faces? Two games is nothing. That's why scouting is beautiful, Sam, because at any point in time, whether it's a good preseason rep, whether it's one training camp catch, whether it's half of a game where a player plays really well, or whether it's 10 years into his NFL <laughs> career like Geno Smith, and he becomes incredible. Wherever you could count the scouting win, that's where you say it mattered most. Yeah. And uh, we're already counting with Will Evans. Like, don't, don't back off now. Don't I, back get, off. I get the shouty shows doing that, right? Because that's their whole shtick, right? They have right. to be hyperbolic. They have to make these points. And it has to change week to week because you do the same damn show every week. And you got to keep going and going and going. So... It makes sense for the shouty shows to like to not 
connect to logic and reality and to just create their own narrative, right? It makes no sense for like some random dude on Twitter to be like, oh, I've seen everything I need to see. Well, how could, what? It just, I can't deal with it. I can't. I can't. And I refuse to now. Unfortunately, those are the most popular shows, though. So, <laughs> right. I mean, they turn on their TV, they uh, watch them with breakfast, and they're like, yeah, I got to do that to random people on yeah, the internet. That but that's why we're here. That's why you and I are here, because we're going to actually dig into it and talk right. about it. We're going to provide some context. But first, we've got to talk about securing your family's financial future. Before we get to any of that, starting with life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life makes it quick, easy, and affordable to protect your family so you can get back to enjoying life and crapping on people that make knee-jerk reactions about quarterbacks after six quarters. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in minutes and then apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in minutes at meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. That's meetfabric.com slash PFFNFL. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash PFFNFL. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. All right, Trev. Let's get into this uh, crazy Thursday night football game that we saw. Um, These are two teams that make no sense, right? Neither one of them has any business winning football games, and yet with Mike Tomlin and Mike Vrabel coaching them, they both seem to win the majority of their football games. Uh, Something had to break, and the thing that broke was Will Levis. You know... I know some people might look back on this game because there were a lot of penalties called and, you know, it's not like it was this offensive onslaught. And I, you know, I felt like certainly the offensive line play for the Titans wasn't good, but I was kind of entertained the entire time for that reason, because I just wanted to know at the end who fate loves more, because that is what has been the case with the Titans and the Steelers over the last couple of seasons is that, there are so many games that they win when it feels like they should not have just because it's written in the stars or it's destiny or a higher power loves them more or like whatever it is. So I was entertained highly until the end, figuring out what was going to happen here. But, you know, I think the weaknesses for these teams might, I don't want to say that they were on full display, but we definitely saw them. I think we just saw some good offensive drives for the Steelers, but then we saw some other instances where, Man, it just felt like there were a lot of head-scratching moves. Uh, on the other side of things for the Tennessee Titans, this team is so far behind the eight ball when it comes to the offensive line being what it needs to be. And I understand that they've got a lot of guys. They were showing the stat last night of all of the undrafted free agents that have had to play for this team because of injuries. And injuries... Nobody likes talking about them as a valid excuse because everybody's just like, oh, yeah, everybody deals with injuries, next man up. Like, that's what happens. Like, too bad. But uh, injuries play a big part into how you play as a team. So the Titans, with all the injuries and the bad luck they've had, like, they do have somewhat of an excuse. But even when this team's fully healthy, I feel as though this season of play for the Titans is showing us that the 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 time when they were competing for playoff spots in the AFC is done. Like that part of their winning window is done. They're in a full rebuild right now. That's why 
to me, it does not make sense for you to go back to Ryan Tannehill once he is healthy. No. You've got Will Levis. Ride it out, man. I mean, he has shown you, all jokes aside, in the first seven quarters that we have seen from him, whatever it's been, <laughs> okay, this is the dude that we need to let go out there and get some reps and figure out what he can and can't do because we have uh, we saw even last night some really great throws. So yeah. these are two teams that I don't think are legitimate contenders in any way. The Steelers, it's more, to me, like they're getting in their own way for a lot of that stuff, and that could be with coaching or with players. And the Titans roster is just, it's no longer built to even be that surprise team that it was a couple of years ago. So that's kind of my assessment of those two teams from what we saw last night. Yeah, we'll get onto the Steelers in a bit, but I agree with you with the the Titans. Okay, Levis is going to end up with not a particularly good PFF grade, but all of the damage happened on that final drive. Like he had three turnover-worthy plays in the game, and all three of them came on the final attempt to game to right. win the game right one right. right at the start and two right at the end and they were all catastrophic plays but it, like if you take those out of his game we are talking about a guy who has four big time throws in that game last night who was doing it with an offensive line that was an absolute mess i mean the titans offensive line particularly the tackles the interior isn't atrocious but the tackle play is horrendous um like the tackle play is bad they they were getting hurt constantly and swapping around. So the offensive line was a mess. I mean, they had one, two, three, four, five, six different offensive linemen give up at least three pressures last night. So not only has Will Levis been looking quite good in six, seven quarters, but he's been doing it behind a terrible offensive line without the kind of platform that you know some other players have. Uh, I think we've already seen enough from Levis not to say – Oh, we got it right. We've perfect, nailed it, scouting, win. But to say there's no point in going back to Tannehill, right? Like we're three right. and five. Tannehill isn't rescuing the season. Levis has already shown more in eight quarters than Tannehill showed this season. So let him play. Like it's going to, apparently, if quarter four happens again, we're going to see some growing pains. But like this was the point in drafting Will Levis, right? Was the, the idea that you might actually stumble into a Ryan Tannehill successor. Now's the time to find that out. Yeah, I, no, I agree with you completely. And, you know, when you look at that last drive, yeah, he had the three turnover-worthy plays, but, you know, it's 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 funny. I think his grade gets dinged more because he had more turnover-worthy plays, but it was a situation where they have to score a touchdown, right? right? I mean, like, they have to move the ball down the field. So that's kind of what you want your rookie quarterback to do. You know, put the ball... Obviously, like he's very green in NFL experience. So where he's looking and the throws he's attempting, like that's kind of we, we watched him go through a lot of those learning curves last night. But you know, let's let, let's say that the the first one gets picked off, right? Okay, then the other two don't exist, even though it doesn't really take away or make the first one any less impactful. And that's just what he was trying to do all drive. They got to a chance. They got to a point where they were within striking distance. And he was just taking a chance. Now, I, you know, you got to see Darius Rush on the second turnover-worthy play that he had. You know, the third one, obviously, you're just kind of throwing it up there and seeing what you can make happen. But to me, that last drive, I care way less about that last drive than I did his play before that point, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now, you would love for him to take care of the football better, but again, like, it's his... 
sixth quarter of play. You you needed a touchdown to win. You were out of timeouts at that point. So, look, he got happy feet in the pocket. You know, there were times where he was doing like a, like a hot pass, and it's like, okay, well, that's why the ball didn't go exactly where it needed to go. That's why the accuracy wasn't exactly what it should have been. And so he'll learn those things. You could tell that he was skittish and he was panicky when he was back there, especially on that last, last drive. But there were a couple just absolute beauties in that game that to me is the bigger takeaway. I don't mean to look at him with rose-colored glasses because we said at the top of the show I had him high on my draft board. But full context involved, those throws earlier in the game, especially the ones in the second half, meant more to me than the couple of turnover-worthy plays that he had at the end of the game because those were learning lessons that were always going to come out, whether it was in one game or whether it's spread across a couple, whatever it is. Yeah, this it's actually a fascinating example of the difference between um, sort of production and, and a connected or a, a, an adjacent PFF grade and what your actual takeaways from the game are, right? And this is part of the the problem or the disconnect where people are like, ah, the PFF grade sucks because I saw something else, right? Like, and it's also why we would say, look, you never, one number is never going to tell you the entire story, right? You come out of this game and Kenny Pickett is going to end up with a reasonably higher grade than Will Levis. All of it happened basically in the fourth quarter in the highest leverage plays. When Kenny Pickett needed a drive, Kenny Pickett hit the, the, the best and basically the only good pass that he hit in the day down the sideline, set them up, they get a touchdown, they go ahead, right? Conversely, when Will Levis needs a drive, he melted down and he had three turnover-worthy plays on a drive, any one of which should have ended their game and one, the, the final one did. So you sort of look at this and by any objective measure, Kenny Pickett is going to end up with sort of more, you know, not production necessarily because obviously Levis had more yardage, but like the Steelers' EPA per play in passing terms is going to be way better than the Titans. You know, that in those terms... Kenny Pickett uh, did better, and therefore they won the game. But you come out of the game, and you're like, Steelers' offense still kind of sucks. The passing game isn't functioning. But Will Levis did show a bunch of big plays. <clears throat> and, you know, he, he sort of undid the good work with those big mistakes that we talked about. But we're not grading talent. And I think what his, he has shown in the first two games that he's played is there is a talent there. His arm talent is obvious. He can make some crazy plays. He's bringing some crazy plays to the table that Tannehill wasn't. And it's not like Tannehill is absent of, you know, physical ability, physical tools. So it's just a slightly different thing that you're quantifying, right? Like he's not necessarily playing amazingly right now, but he is showing reasons to want to stick with him and want to invest in him and want to go forward with him. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I, I was as I was watching the game last night, Levis, I, I thought about tweeting this out, but he didn't really have the end of the drive that I wanted to. I can't remember <laughs> if it was the last drive or if it was the one before. So it was it would have been kind of pointless to say, but we use the term he can he can make all the throws all the time, right? When scouting we're like, oh, he, you know, he can make all of the NFL throws. And I think when people when people hear that phrase, they think of the deep shots. Like they go, oh, okay, he can throw it deep down the field. You know, he whether it's at the sideline or a, a post over the middle. When we say that he can make all the throws, 
what these people are envisioning are the 40, 50 yard passes, whatever. That's not the whole picture. Levis had a couple of throws last night. There was just an absolute seed over the middle in between the linebacker level and where the two safeties were that was just a beauty on a frozen rope that went right to his player. And that was a, that is an example of make all the NFL throws. Having the arm talent to conjure that kind of velocity to hit a player in stride right in between two levels of the defense. And if you don't have that kind of heat on the pass, it's not going to get where it needs to go. You're going to have to put too much trajectory on it. The safety is going to be able to come over. Or you're, if you're trying to throw it past the linebacker and it's not going fast enough, linebacker is going to tip it or he's going to intercept it. That is an example of having all of the NFL throws. And then later in that drive, he hit um, – he hit Kyle Phillips on a little corner route that was kind of like right in the middle of the field, so it's not a corner of the end zone, but it was a little corner out route, and he put the perfect amount of touch on it to where it was just right in the bread basket as he was going to the sideline. That is an example of he can make all the throws because that, he not he didn't have to show you velocity there. He showed you touch there. So the phrase kept, as I was watching Will Levis last night, I kept thinking about that phrase he makes all the NFL throws or he has the ability to make all the NFL throws. And I just feel as though a lot of people hone in on the deep shots when they hear that phrase. And it's more than just that. It's those tightrope throws over the middle in between the safeties and between the linebackers. It's the, the, the passes with touch that go right over the shoulder, right into sideline with just enough space to give your wide receiver the ability to get two feet in bounce. Like those are also part of what goes into that phrase. And to me, that, personified what Will Levis has been over the last year and a half of us saying he has the arm talent to make all the throws. Those are just as important as the 50, 60, and in his instance, 70-yard deep shots that we've seen him make before. <clears throat> yeah, I've been – I mean, uh, everyone knows he's got a really strong arm and he can throw a laser um, and his like his release is crazy quick and it, it often comes from you know these sort of sidearm deliveries all, all that sort of stuff was obvious but I've been actually impressed through those eight quarters so far of how much touch he's got on the ball like he's yeah he's thrown some some of his best passes so far in the NFL have been touch passes and that's not what you would have given him credit for coming into the NFL you know the, the talk is he can make all the throws he can do all and when we hear that we tend to think of those you know 20-yard out routes from the far hash, that kind of thing. But actually, all the throws mean sometimes you need to take some heat off it and loft it in there yes. and, you know, layer it and all those kinds of things. And you're right. Like, those are the plays that actually he's been probably most impressive on so far uh, through two games. I would agree. I agree completely. All right. Let's go to the Steelers for a moment. Um, <laughs> we the, the Mike Tomlin said – they're not afraid to make changes. You know, if things need to happen to make this team better. So, of course, the big change was made. And Matt Canada went from the booth to the sideline. And, therefore, everything's good now. Because we're 1-0 with Matt Canada on the sideline. So, I don't see any more things that can, be, that can possibly improve the offense, frankly. Yeah, I mean, they're good to go, right? I mean, destined for the playoffs is a playoff team. Never doubted it for a second. Um <laughs> 
obviously I think the Steelers had a couple of drives last night to where they played well. I can't remember if it was that opening drive or their second drive where they marched straight down the field and it looked methodical. Actually, I think it was that opening drive because I remember texting John Ledyard about it and I was like, wow, you lied to me. The Steelers offense is legit. It's one of the best in the NFL because he's been getting on Matt Canada all year long. But yeah, obviously like it was very stagnant after that. I still, there are times in the game where I still just didn't love the approach. Like, the right before the right before the two minute warning to end the game, they got an opportunity to pick up a first down that essentially would have ended the game because Tennessee started to to burn their timeouts, and you could hear the broadcast talking about this as well. They had a decision to make. I believe it was second down at the time. It was second and somewhat long. They could go try to throw it, try like try to actually go for this first down to put the game out of reach. Or you could just hand the ball off twice and make sure that you burn two of Tennessee's three timeouts. But to me, that was so conservative because Tennessee also had the two-minute warning. And you running the ball twice, which they ended up doing, didn't even take away all of Tennessee's timeouts. They still had one left over because of the two-minute warning. So it was one of those things where it's like, damn. This is conservative as hell. Like this is like you've got to have more faith in your offense, faith in your guys to be able to move the ball. And I understand you pin them back a little bit. You make them go the full field. You say to them, "Hey, a field goal won't do them any good because they were down four points. They had to get in the end zone." But when that ended up happening. When they ran the ball twice at the end of the game in a very, very conservative strategy, they punted the ball away. Sure, Tennessee had 80 yards to go, but at that point in time, they had a minute 45 left on the clock and a timeout. This is the NFL. What, have these guys like not watched any game for the last five or ten years? Every, almost every single team is able to get within striking distance with that kind of time and with that kind of – and with at least one timeout. And guess what happened? They did. They got within striking distance, and Levis obviously throws the interception, so it all works out for them. But it's those kind of moves where I'm just like, man, like how do the Steelers keep playing this conservative and just still keep coming up with wins? Nobody seems to be making them pay, and I guess that's – they're playing it super safe and they're getting the results that they want. But, man, it, it's just like – Moments like that that do not give me faith in the Pittsburgh Steelers to beat the best teams in the NFL. It's those uh, kinds of moments where you had the opportunity to take the game. You had the ball. You have the ball. You don't even throw it one time. You didn't even throw it on second down to try to make it a first down or third and very short and put the defense in a very tough situation. They just ran an end around, and then they ran it straight up the middle, I think. So, man, I just – I know that they won, but – I don't have this faith in this team to to beat the best in the NFL. I just don't think they have that mentality right now, especially on offense. No, I mean, have you got – dig up your Schefter stat there because it's some of the numbers that are coming out of the Steelers team this year are crazy. I mean, they're winning games. It, it Every week you come, you come out of a Steelers game where they win. You're like, how how did they win that game? It made no sense. And it, the, the stats that are showing up now are actually kind of bearing that out. <laughs> like it, it is a team that doesn't – that has no business winning these games and keeps winning them. So have you... Uh, you going to read it? Yeah, hit it. Okay, this is from Adam Scheffner from, uh, after the game last night. At 5-3, and three, the Steelers are the 34th team 
since 1933, when rushing and receiving stats are first tracked, to be outgained in each of their first eight games of the season, and they're the only team of those 34 who have a winning record. The o- they have been outgained every single game of the season through eight games. That's only happened 34 times since 1933, and they are the only team to have an above 500 record. And not only do they have that, it's at five and three, which is nuts. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, they are, that, and that's what it feels like. That's what the Steelers team feels like this season. The other interesting stat that came out of this rookie quarterbacks versus Mike Tomlin in Pittsburgh apparently are now one and 14. And the one was rookie Dak Prescott with the Dallas Cowboys. But, Hell yeah, Dak agenda lives. Right. Tomlin is in that category now of, you know, Bill Belichick versus rookie quarterbacks of it's a nightmare. It doesn't go well. Uh, and it didn't. It, it went fine right up until the final drive. And then Will Levis confused, throwing the ball to safeties. Doesn't go well. Um, the other thing I think that, okay, so the, the, you know, the, the big change. Everyone's been calling for essentially for Matt Canada's job and some kind of change to happen. Pittsburgh doesn't do things like that. So they bring him down from the booth to the sideline. Um, it didn't change what is maybe the most fundamental problem in this offense, which is they simply do not target the middle of the field. I have never in my life seen a passing map that looks like the Steelers' passing map. This is their passing map from last night. There is a giant yawning chasm in the middle of the field that they simply do not put the ball in. There are two passes. Uh, sorry, one, two, three, four passes, essentially, that were attempted between the numbers, which is like the majority of the field, only one of which was complete. Like, hmm. that's insane. You cannot yeah. just you cannot draw a giant line down the middle of the field and say, we're not aiming in that area because that's most of the defense. Like, if you've decided we're simply not going to challenge that area of the field, you're making life way too easy for opposing defenses. Like, all they do is play a boatload of cover two, funnel everything to the outside, and squeeze the tiny sliver of space that you're actually trying to attempt passes into, and you have no shot. And okay, Kenny Pickett missed quite a lot of passes yesterday. Like, that first drive they scored, I think he had a couple of misses on. The second drive stopped because he missed a guy. Like, he, there were passes there that he could have hit, but I do not understand why this offense will not throw the ball into the middle of the field. I'm looking up if his passing map was that crazy at Pittsburgh. And I don't think it was. No. I don't remember like having that in the notes that, oh, Kenny Pickett just didn't throw over the middle of the field, so it's just a... I don't know. It's just a Matt Canada Steelers thing. Yeah, it's a Matt Canada thing, not a Kenny Pickett thing. Yeah, it's it's definitely because I'm look I'm looking at the, the the heat map right now, or at least the dot map that we have right in our database, and uh, he throws he throws over the middle plenty. So it's it's hmm. crazy. I I don't. I mean, that's the change that needs to happen. Like, forget sideline to booth, booth to sideline, whatever. That's irrelevant. It's dude, why are we not throwing the ball into the middle of the field? Like, that's the question. That's the conversation that needs to be taking place somewhere in Pittsburgh meeting rooms. Like, Mike Tomlin, whoever, going in and saying, hey, Matt, we love you. We like you. We're not trying to get you fired. What is what is with this? Like, put that map on the screen and say, why is there a giant white space in the middle of this? Because pick any other game by any other team, and it doesn't look like that. What are we doing here? Yeah, I think... 
I mean, he threw over the middle of the, a ton. Now I'm just I'm just like staring at this heat map from Pickett's <laughs> last last season at, at Pittsburgh because that's yeah that's astounding. You have to be able to attack over the middle. There, there's no question about it. You, like you said, you completely limit. Well, I I should say it the other way around. You completely unlock how aggressive a defense can be against you with their spacing if they know that you're not going to attack over the middle. Right. You know, if if they know that this is not a preference of yours, sure, they might get beat for it once or twice during the game, but if you're not going to make them pay more than that, they're going to have guys, you know, they're going to have the the safeties creeping a little bit more towards the sideline if they know the only thing that you're going to do to attack deep is probably the go routes. Um, And they're going to be able to identify a lot of what could be go routes in the pre-snap, so that'll make them even more aggressive. Yeah, I just... Yeah, the linebackers probably don't have to drop as far deep over the middle. Like it's it's bad when you don't unlock all the field. And we talk about that a lot with quarterback prospects because especially, for example, Bryce Young's height was brought up a lot when it comes to Plenty of things, but one question people had is, man, if Bryce is so small, can he legitimately see over the offensive line well enough through the clutter to attack over the middle of the field? Or is he going to be reluctant to throw over the middle of the field? Because if you do that, that's already starting behind the eight ball and you're starting with a limited offense and a limited quarterback. You don't want that. But Bryce was not that way during his time at Alabama. He consistently attacked over the middle of the field. And I think that he does the same when the opportunities are there in Carolina, although there's a lot of problems with their receiving core right now and certainly their offensive line, so it makes it more difficult. But we have seen that he is not hesitant to look over the middle of the field and attack that area. And so when people kind of brought that up with his height, I was like, no, no, no. It, it wasn't an issue at Alabama either the last two years. And when the offensive line is good and the receivers are good, I, I don't think that'll be an issue in the NFL. So it's... Yeah, I mean, it's got to be better. There's no question about it. It's got to be better. And very clearly, it's not a Kenny Pickett thing, at least going back to his time at Pittsburgh. No. So, just yeah. a game plan thing. As I say, that honestly, that conversation, and it's difficult when you win games, right? Because you, you can be led into thinking things are working. But that conversation, if it's not happening in Steelers meeting rooms soon, and, and honestly, before now, is crazy like that is the obvious problem in this offense they have they cordon off a giant section of the field and simply do not target it whatsoever and that that's insane because you're making life just way too easy for the opposition it's nuts it doesn't make any sense so other interesting performances to come out of this game alex highsmith with a massive 10 total pressures two sacks uh tj watt obviously seven pressures a sack like that edge rushing duo just absolutely feasted on those bad and backup at times Tennessee offensive tackles. Joey Porter Jr. had one of the wildest games ever. He's going to end up with a stat line that looks amazing because it was five targets, one catch for seven yards, uh, and a passer rating given up a 41. But he had four penalties in the game, <laughs> like, yeah. three of which extended the drive on, at the time. So it's like his stats look great. If you forget the idea that, you know, the penalties are actually quite an important part of that as well. Which we do, of course. Yeah, yeah well, we, naturally. Yeah, yeah. It's the stats. The one, they, well, they won the game. They won the game, brother. Don't I mean, need look, to, we, don't, we don't need to talk about the negative. How about Keanu Benton, too? Yeah. You know, just before we get too far away from the defensive line, like, Keanu Benton, we talked about him plenty in the pre-draft process, especially after that senior bowl performance that he had. 
because going into his final year at Wisconsin, he really was just kind of a big run stuffer. Like he was just a nose tackle guy. Somebody was going to get drafted. I don't know early day three as a, as a good run stuffer from Wisconsin. And that last year that he played there, he seemed to get better and better at pass rushing every single week. He goes to the senior bowl and he looks like one of the best pass rushing interior defensive linemen that they had there uh, ends up getting picked a lot higher in the draft than we would have thought a year prior. And he already looks awesome, man. I saw plenty of times last night, the flashes of disruption and him getting by his guys pretty early and with Highsmith and, and Watt, those guys are often going to get to the quarterback, especially against a team whose tackles are as playing as poorly as Tennessee's are. But I just don't want Ben's performance to get uh, overlooked by how good the edge rushers are because he was also getting into the backfield, and he has been throughout this season since since Cam Hayward went down. Um, the only last thing I think to mention from this game is somehow George Pickens, of all wide receivers, fails to get two feet down in the end zone with like a yard and a half's worth of space once he's catching the football. I mean, if any receiver did that, you would be like, that's a terrible play. What are you doing? George Pickens, Mr. Like sideline catch master is the guy that ends up screwing it up. Just insane. Just, uh, I just, I could not believe it because he must've just thought he had way more space than was there because he had, all the time in the world to get that toe down. And the only other thing that I can think of is it was cold in Pittsburgh last night and hitting the ground at that kind of temperature probably doesn't feel good. So did he just really, because because think about it like this, if he were to bring that second toe down, He's hitting the ground, right? I mean, like you can brace for it and you can roll over, whatever. But if you are just toe dragging, you're going to fall to the ground. You're going to hit the ground. Maybe. He, it, it looked like he just, I don't know, didn't want to hit the ground. He just put his foot down. And he was like, yeah, I'm not going to hit the ground. I don't, I don't want that. <laughs> it's cold. I don't want to hit the ground. So I don't know, man. I don't know. He actually, though, like he had so much space that I think he could have actually just toe dragged or even like got the the foot in before the line without hitting the ground <laughs> like I, I agree normally you're right that you know if you if you're gonna have to drag that toe you are essentially saying yeah i gotta hit the ground on this one but he had so right. much space i think he could have achieved it without that i'm sure a bunch of people tweeted this but barstool sports was the one that i saw um they, they tweeted a picture the ball is in both of his hands his right foot is coming down he is easily a yard and a half away from the sideline and their caption is simply George Pickens didn't get two feet in on this play. Like it is insane. When you see the freeze frame, it makes no sense whatsoever for any, again, any wide receiver, let alone a guy like George Pickens who like specializes in this type of catch. I don't get it, man. That was this, that was, and, and because of that, his stat line ended five targets, two catches, negative one receiving yard <laughs> and brett coleman shout out good friend of the show brett coleman had a promo for george pickens 0.5 receiving yards on the game 0.5 it's not a big ask and he's, he's, <laughs> <laughs> 
it's all good fun because I think everybody got their money back for it because the betting company was like, no, we can't do it. We can't yeah. do this to the good people. No, we but, can't let that happen. Man, that is brutal. That is just a brutal bonus play, whatever it is, boosted play, whatever you want to call it. Honestly, I think my favorite part about, you know, the gambling landscape in the world these days is like hysterical bad beats. I, I just think, I think some of them are... It's, it, it, it's, it's just, it's wild how often it feels like they happen too yeah like svp scott van pelt <laughs> as on his on his nightly sports center thing i don't know how often he does it but he'll do like all right we got the bad beat of the day or like the bad yeah. beat of the week and it'll be just some brutal backdoor <laughs> cover <laughs> and you're like and you know that somebody lost a bunch of money on that because uh, man betting is yeah yeah, I mean, this is like they've always happened and they've always been relevant to something. It's just now people have money on it, so it's funnier. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, it's more it painful is. when they hit. Um, all right, we're going to get into uh, a little discussion on analytics and what Nick Saban in particular has to think about it. But first, mm. this podcast is brought to you by Prize Picks. Um, what are our prize picks for this week? Let me uh, dig it up in the chat here. All right, our guy ZT, he's on a roll. He let's go, baby. He hit. Let's go. He hit. Talk he's about, got talking talk about talking about putting money on the line. You got to put money on the line. Smart. Yes, and there's nothing smarter than putting money on the line with a kicker and Young Way Koo to have <laughs> more than one and a half field goals made. Uh, Alvin Kamara, more than four and a half receptions. Austin Eckler, more than 28 and a half receiving yards. And the great MVP candidate, Lamar Jackson, more than one and a half passing, rushing, or and receiving touchdowns. So those three things, if they combine for more than one and a half touchdowns, you win. That is ZT Slate. He's pumped about it. Obviously, the man is, is expecting big things this week, more across the board. And uh, that's what we've got for you. Choose uh, two to three of these things or more. We've got four here. Uh, with the baseball, with the basketball season here, rather, you can now pick combo projections. Not that he's done it, but you can do that. You can dive into combo projections uh, with football and basketball from the Specials League, a league created specifically for combo projections that includes two or more players from different sports or leagues. For example... LeBron James plus Travis Kelsey at a 10.5 combo of three uh, points made and receptions. Want to play alongside some of the prize pick's favorite players like rapper Meek Mill and comedian Andrew Schultz? You can now find community plays under the promos tab of the app to view entries from some of the biggest names in the prize picks community each week. Prize picks even offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. Uh, for football and basketball games, if you have a player who exits the game in the first half and does not return for the second, that player is rebooted. Prize Picks is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an insurance or an injury insurance policy. Go to prizepicks.com forward slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Again, that's prizepicks.com forward slash PFFNFL and use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. All right, Trev, it's time to do analytics talk again because apparently it's the conversation that will never die. Um, mm. Nick Saban did his weekly spot on the Pat McAfee show, for which he apparently receives quite a healthy stipend, uh, according to, to reports. 
you, you, brother, you know that he, you think, you think Nick Saban would be doing a weekly segment no. in the middle of college football season if he wasn't getting paid an egregious <laughs> amount of money for it? He ain't doing it for the love of the game. I know he does love the game. <laughs> but that man, yeah, yeah, that man's, that man's pocketbook is, uh, is lined That's up. That's right there next to the Aflac commercials for uh line item in, in Nick Saban's, you know, W-2 form over the year. That's his tax return. We got McAfee Bank, we got Aflac Bank, and then we got whatever Alabama's paying him, some ungodly sum of money. That man's doing okay over the course of the season. Anyway, Nick Saban started giving his talk, his, uh, his take on analytics. We've got a couple of clips that we want to play so we can talk about it. Um, let's hit the first one because this is the easiest one to start off with. Uh, and they talk about analytics, you know, saying that you got this percentage chance to make it on this down and distance on fourth down, so it's worth going for it. Um, but what the analytics really don't tell you is what happens when you don't make it. Well. Uh, so um, those consequences are pretty significant. You know, sometimes too, especially when you don't take field position into to you know account. But that would be something that we could have a conversation about. So, I I'm interested in this because it sort of shows the classic old school attitude of you know establishment versus analytics, and mm -hmm. it's always couched in the negative uh, framework of like what happens if we don't get it right. But the other thing is. Like, we, <laughs> he says, it doesn't even take into account field position. Of course it takes into account field position. What are you talking about? Every it's single analytics model in the world is taking into account field position. Nobody is using a number that simply says, well, the, they say the chances of converting on fourth down is like 60%, so go for every fourth down. I mean, of course the numbers say go for it. Literally nobody is saying that, right? That is madness. And somebody of Nick Saban's stature cannot not know that. Like, it's an egregious and ridiculous thing to be saying. And the number of times you hear these people talk about, well, the analytics doesn't say this, 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 and this. And almost universally, the analytics, actually, the models does. absolutely factor those things in because not factoring them in which is the point they're making would be idiotic i think i mean i agree with you completely and i i i honestly believe that the negative stigma that comes around analytics stems from coaches thinking that somebody's like coming for their job yes and, and and that's 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 not what it's that's not what we're trying like analytics doesn't necessarily I don't I don't think I'm, I'm trying to like organize my thoughts here coaches believe that if you're using analytics then it's like not how football was like meant to be played and it's just it's not the case it's always supposed to be supplemented this is simply supposed to help you like we are helping you make better decisions that's all it is. It's like a decision-making thing. It's also not 100% guaranteed. Right. You're just taking a lot of things into account. And so every time we hear comments like this, and it's – I hate criticizing a coach like Saban who is, who is 
clearly one of the greatest, if not the greatest coach of all time for what he has done in this dynasty that he's had at Alabama. So it's not like we're saying that we're better coaches than Nick Saban or that we could build a program better than him or anything like that. We're simply saying that the tool, the overarching umbrella term of analytics has gotten such a negative stigma from so many different coaches. And it's just not that. It's just they're viewing it in the wrong light. Right. Analytics well, don't exist to make you feel like you're wrong all the time. In fact, like it's supposed to be the opposite. Analytics exists so you make better decisions more often. Like that's the whole point. And it 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 is it has become this combative term. And it's just it, it's not supposed to be that. Oh, anal- analytics, it doesn't tell you what f- what field position there is or what personnel there is or what happens if you don't get it. Yes, it does. That's the whole point of the like the win probability part of the column that you would look at when you have a guy who makes a decision for you on the sideline that kind of says to you, hey, if we don't get this and it ends up being this down and distance, this is what it should be. These are the percentages. This is what it's looked like for us. Like it's it. it, I think coaches believe it's just success rate and success rate goes into it, obviously, but it's not just success rate it's also game game script and game flow and win percentage if you get it versus if you don't and and what becomes a worthwhile risk to take it's just a it's un, it's unfortunately another example of the negative view around analytics and social media like many things in the world does like makes this worse because i think people look at analytics and and people then just use decision making analytics and they try to like call coaches like awful coaches and things like that and there's just so many more things go into it but that's another rant for another day ultimately yes i agree with you completely analytics does take into account what happens if you don't get it or the field position and things like that and it just kind of sucks that a coach is prominent as nick saban whether he wants to use it or not believes that and voices but that the, the funny thing is yeah the, the funny thing is it's classic it's disingenuous and it's classic misdirection because um yeah he goes out here and he paints this like boogeyman analytics says this and it can't take it now number one i'm he probably knows that's not true, right? Because he's using analytics, right? The, even if he doesn't want to admit it. This was like, remember when Bill Belichick for years would bang on about analytics being a waste of time. Meanwhile, they're running like the most sophisticated analytics department in the NFL with Ernie, you know, in the booth on his own. Like they, they were doing all of this stuff and he would like publicly dump on it because he knew he had a better system than most people. So I'm sure Saban uses this stuff. And the way I know he does is because literally like 30 seconds later in that clip, he's talking about how uh, a turnover, he's basically equating missing for missing on fourth down, right? Not converting and therefore mm. turning the ball over on downs. He's mm. equating that with an actual turnover. And he's saying, if you run the numbers, a turnover is worth like three and a half points, right? Well, how do you know that, Nick? Was it analytics by any chance? <laughs> like, you can't crap on it when you don't want to listen to what it says and then use it over a, here to make your point. But a lot of coaches do. Yes. A lot of coaches do. And that—that that is, I, again, like I think that you are so correct in saying that it's a misdirection kind of a thing. And whether it's an on purpose, which, look, 
Saban is a brilliant football mind. So perhaps yeah. he is doing what Belichick, Belichick is doing where they have all these analytics, but he knows that he has so much power that if he says the analytics are garbage, then maybe other people will not use it as much as he does. But that's all it is, man. That's all these things are. It's just enhanced, contextualized data to help you make better decisions. That's all it is. It's not a guarantee. It's not a this. Like it is simply a tool that you use to help coach better in situational football. And what what will coach coaches will tell it's it is funny because coaches will tell you this all the time. They will say of the 130 snaps that there are in a football game. Basically the game comes down to four or five plays, right? Four or five plays that you can point to that said this made all the difference in the world when it came to what the score was at the end of the game. They'll tell you it's four or five plays. Why would you not want to have all of the information that you possibly could have to make the smartest decision in those four or five plays that make the difference for you? That's all it is. Yeah. It's not it's not like the the only way that analytics is coming for your job is if there is somebody who uses them more open-mindedly, who then makes better decisions, who then gets better results than you. And this That's is, the only way analytics is coming after these coaches' jobs. And this is the thing. like This is now how analytics is affecting these guys. And we have another clip. So they, they finished up talking to Saban, and Chuck Pagano was on the show, and Chuck Pagano gave his little take on it. So let's run the second clip, because I think this is pretty uh, illuminating. And do you see the graphics now even on the games? So instead of the team name at the bottom, if one team's playing another, they'll just run a graphic that says ESPN analytics say fourth and six or less oh. go. Yep. Or well, whatever. Every time Joe it's Buck, on there. Joe, Joe, Why? Yeah, and Joe Buck chimes in and says analytics says right here because you're over the 50-yard lane, anything up to fourth and six, you go. Tonight, Amazon uses it too. And oh, so if it, use- doesn't, if it doesn't work, then they're throwing that at you after the fact. What this is what it says. Everybody Why? on earth knows that one particular AI says this is sixty-seven percenter. <laughs> yeah, AJ, think about wrong. some think, of it's good, but think about that, AJ. Though that is a real thing to even think about there because he just he just mentioned uh, Carly, Jim, Pete. Okay, so that's uh, president of the Colts, uh, owner of the Colts, next owner of the Colts. Okay, so that's three generations. And she's down there. She's on the sideline mm-hmm. with these numbers in there. You could see how some coaches will just want to take the feel out of it because then they can cover their own ass. Mm-hmm. So analytics are now being like weaponized against these guys that don't use them because everybody else has them now. So it's actually the way that, co- that coaches are now being pushed into using analytics is the fear that, well, the owner is being given this stuff, the president is being given this stuff, the GM mm-hmm. is being given this stuff. If I'm going against the analytics, I better have a good reason for it. And honestly, right. I think that's a good thing because the, right. we should have a good reason for going against the numbers. It's not that the numbers are infallible because we're talking about these things that steal win percentage points, right? As everybody points out, they're not saying it's 100% you're going to hit this thing. They're not even saying Mm -hmm. it's like an 80% you're going to hit this thing. They're saying if you do this and you make the right call a thousand times, you're going to steal, you know, three plays, five plays, whatever it is. You're going to get an edge slightly over the people that aren't doing it that way. And over a long period of time, you win. And that's easier to prove if you're playing poker, right, and you're playing thousands of hands in a night, it's harder to prove if you're doing 
playing football where there's 100 snaps in a game, maybe, uh, on your side of the ball, you know, and, and small sample size and, and bad beats can go against you easily. But, like, coaches look at this from the what-could-go-wrong point of view, and everybody else is looking at this from the point of view is wh- of what is the optimal strategy right. only adjust when necessary. Yeah, and, and I think that what you said um, right when we came back from that clip is important. Like, it, if you have a good reason of of why you went for it or didn't go for it versus maybe what the analytics would say, right. then that's fine. Like, like, it, like, if you're in a situation where you go, somebody asks you after the game, let's say there was a fourth and two, you didn't go for it, whatever. Somebody asked you, hey, why didn't you go for it here? The analyst kind of said that you go for it here. And if you were to say, like, you know, our right guard had gotten hurt two plays before, our left tackle, like, it just, something happened with his ankle. You know, he, he wasn't 100% on it. Um, some of our best, like, short yardage plays are when we're running to the left side, whatever. We, we didn't want to risk it there with two of those offensive linemen down, whatever. Like, if you if you were able to contextualize that, then you go, oh, okay, yeah. Like, that's the, that's the feel part of the game that is totally fine. And, and, and I think a lot of people believe that analytics is coming after that feel part. But if you were to say something like that, I'd be like, yeah, okay, I get it. Like in the moment, you had a couple of guys down or you weren't in the right situation. Context was a little bit different. But at least you understood, right? I think that a lot of these coaches get the pushback from the people who use or read analytics when this topic is brought up and it's almost like they don't know about it, Right. There was a moment last year when Byron Leftwich, the offensive coordinator of the Buccaneers, was asked about EPA per play yeah. in a press conference. And he kind of he like he just started laughing. But I think he started laughing because he thought that this was just a some some nerd who is who was bringing up a question to him. In reality, I don't think he knew what EPA per play was. I think he said he and didn't. I think he actually brought it up that he had he didn't know what that was or something. Right. Like he's definitely so on record like that's, saying something that's like that. the stuff that will actually get pushback from people. Like that's legitimate pushback. If you want to take a look at the under if you if you want to take the time to understand what analytics are from an open mind, if you want to completely understand what they do, how they got to that point. And if you can understand all of that stuff and still make decisions that might go against it every now and then, if you can explain it, like, okay, like you can explain it. It's the, it's the head in the sand. Well, analytics is, yeah, they can't, they can't do this. They can't do that. That's just completely not true. I think that's where you get in trouble with a lot of this stuff. And again, like it, it, I hate criticizing these coaches who have had a ton of success doing what they've been doing for a long time, especially at the top with guys like Saban. And I'm not saying I'm a better coach than Saban in any way, shape, or form, but I don't think that anybody who's in good faith having a conversation about analytics would tell you that if they were talking with Nick Saban about it. But it, it is it does it does kind of suck when the things that come to light or the conversations that happen in front of a microphone from the coaching perspective fortifies this almost like head in the sand. Well, those are just a bunch of nerds kind of a, yeah, it's kind of a mindset. Cause that, that, that part is, 
obviously not true. It's the close-minded approach to the conversation that they have that I think is troubling, right? Because, as I said, you can tell simply from what he said that Nick Saban does use analytics, at which point terming it and couching it in these terms like this is, it's not an honest conversation and it's disingenuous and it's not fair to what we're doing not just us like PFF, but like the world, right? The, the progress that the football watching world is making by understanding data better, right? And I'll happily cede to some of the points they make, which is, look, there are times where you're going to want to go against the analytics because there will be things that the analytics can't take into account. Now, it's right. not field position, and it's not a bunch of the other idiot things they say, but right. there are going to be plays where, like, the analytics says go – and you've called a timeout and, you know, you're, you're, you want to do a sneak or whatever, right? But your quarterback just, like, wrecked his thumb and can't even grip the ball. So that's just right. simply off the exactly. table, right? Analytics can't really take that into account. You want to send them out there, but, you're, like, you're not putting in the backup so that the analytics won't factor that into account. But neither does it know that your quarterback – like, the Stafford thing, right? The, the analytics doesn't know that Stafford just ruined his thumb in that play until you take him out of the game, <laughs> right? So – at that point, you are dealing with information the model doesn't have, and there's no problem whatsoever with saying, I'm going to overrule it on this occasion. Exactly. And that's perfectly explainable yes. after the fact, right? The model said, yes, my quarterback had a broken thumb. He couldn't grip the ball. We said no. Or, you know, they, they said this during the McAfee show where, you know, there are, there are going to be times where, you know, you, you, wanna, you go, hey, guys, you want to go for it? And, like, the offense is like, eh. like everybody sort of feels bad, right? They, they just think, no, we're getting beat up. We can't make this two yards. Cool. Oh, that's okay. If the it, entire right, offense doesn't right. think they can make it, they probably can, right? So, it, again, it, go say no. Overrule the analytics because my team had no confidence on that play for whatever that's worth. And I decided – but these are all – if you go into, a, into the – if it doesn't work out, you go into the press conference afterwards, and a reporter goes, "the the analytics model said two percentage win, you know, two percentage gain here. Go for it. Why didn't you go for it?" That's a perfectly reasonable point to make. Yeah, yes. yeah, we knew. The guy in my ear said the model says go, but I asked the team if they were up for it, and they all looked at me like I was crazy because we're getting our asses kicked. So we said no. We said kick it, and it didn't work out. But I still feel like that's the right call. I don't. I, I mean, okay, I'm not going to say there are no analytics people that would say that's crazy. There were, people would. There were, there were people that would be like, that's just... Yeah, but again, move. like, that's that, you're, you're not trying to talk to those people, right? right? Just, just like you're not trying to talk to coaches that only want to stick their head in the sand yeah. about analytics and what it really is. You don't want to talk to the people on the far other side of things who are like, yeah, context in the game of football doesn't matter. I don't care if your offensive line is gas and has played 75 plays at that point going up against a fresh defensive line. I don't care that your quarterback can't grip the ball. I don't care that this player just went out with an injury. Like, if you're talking to those people on the the far analytics side, okay, right, they're bad too. It's always in the middle. It's always it's it's simply supposed to supplement your decision making. Yeah. That's it. That's well, it's, all it is. It's, it's not. It's not. It's 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 not the Bible, you know, of how to win a football game. It's simply a tool to help you. And if you have a good understanding of what it is, and you therefore can explain when you go against it and why, yeah. It's this fine. And you're probably going to make some really damn good decisions if you are in that sort of headspace. Right. That's the conversation that needs to take place because all analytics is doing is essentially giving you a 
starting point of information when previously it was gut feel all the way along, right? right? So it's like, I think this thing is where I should start from. And then you run a bunch of numbers, you're like, oh, it's actually not. Like I was off because I was only looking at four games or you know, I, I looked at the wrong tape or whatever it is. Like that's the way things used to work. Um, because coaches have been doing this for so long, they just think that their gut feel is dead on every single time. But actually you're like, no, look, this is the starting point. The starting point is actually eight percentage points higher than you thought it was, right? And you can still overrule that. You can still go against it when it makes sense. But like, here's where your default position should be. This is what you should be aiming at, right? That kind of thing. It's just, it's giving you a more accurate starting point to then determine whether you're going to go for, go against it based off specific circumstances or not, as opposed to, I'm just, the whole thing is going to be gut feel based off what I decide or not. Because that's clearly, obviously, like self-evidently a worse way of doing it. Nobody. Not if you're, not if you're saving or Belichick. Maybe that's why they don't like doing it because they know that they've got a better gut football gut feeling than anybody else who's out there. Well, alternatively, like think about how many win percentage points those guys have left on the table throughout, you know, decades worth of football play right like this is the thing like they might be better than anybody else but they might also be sacrificing 10 percent through their entire careers by simply going gut feel the whole way anyway i I think there is an interesting conversation to be had i think they made some good points on that mcavee show but they're always dressed up in you know idiot points which i think isn't helpful to anybody when discussing the analytics like let's Let's at least have an honest conversation about what analytics does and doesn't do, and then we can accept the flaws, right? And I, there are some. Like, nobody's arguing analytics is perfect. You go with the numbers every single time. You're going to get it right every single time. It's just about stealing an edge, right? Stealing an edge yep. relative to the guy that isn't going to do that and doing that as often as possible and only deviating it from only deviating from it when it makes sense to do that. So anyway, I'm sure you guys have all watched the McAfee show, uh, but it's worth running through that and getting uh, their take on the whole analytics thing. We're going to park the uh, the general manager question for uh, another day, Trev. We were going to hit that at the end of the Sorry. show, but we're already dragging on. So we're going to park that for today, uh, and we're going to kick over to Vic to talk about injuries, and uh, Trev will be back next week. So thanks for listening. Let's uh, head over to the Boo Boo Breakdown. All right, back with us as ever on a Friday is our guy Victor O'Hara to talk through the injuries uh, throughout the NFL. Quarterback time. We've got a bunch of them go down. No kidding. Backup quarterback week last week. So uh, <laughs> let's start running through a few of them. Yeah. Kirk Cousins, I guess, the, the most significant, the biggest injury, and obviously done for the year with his Achilles injury. Um, I guess we all got a little bit more familiar with the Achilles injury with Aaron Rodgers earlier in the season. So... I guess let's start with, um, you know, how similar is this likely to be for Kirk Cousins? So uh, he doesn't have the same surgeon. I know that. I haven't heard about the type of surgery he's going to have. With an Achilles rupture like this, it's about the same as far as injury standpoint. But with Aaron Rodgers, he had a relatively new procedure where they do like an internal brace, which is kind of why you see him being able to wait there mm. sooner than um, you know most people. With Kirk Cousins, I don't know what type of surgery, uh, but I think we're going to wait to hear. And no matter what, we're 10 months out from week one for right. him. So, <clears throat> I mean, he's going to be pushing it just to get back at that point. Uh, 
I think what he has going against him is that it's his right foot, which is his plant leg, his back leg, his driving leg, because he's right-handed. Um, so that's going to be one where you have to monitor his power because when you come out of a Achilles tendon rupture, no matter what the surgery is, um, statistics show about like a 20 to 30% decrease in strength that first year back. So what I'm hoping is that he has a good recovery, he comes back, and he also gains his power back. But I think that he'll be able to come back next year. I mean, age isn't on his side. We know that. He's a little bit older. I think he's 38 or so. So he's not necessarily you know, a youthful player who's going to have um, a fast recovery and bounce back for that point. But I don't see it being an issue if all the things go well with the surgery. Um, yeah, he's, he's 35, so he's got 35. a couple more years. In him. <laughs> yeah. um, does the fact that it's on his right leg as opposed to the left with Rogers change whether he's uh, like a candidate for that new type of surgery or is it just it's just a new technique doesn't matter no it doesn't really change the the fact that he's not like a candidate for it or not the f the surgery because it's a newer technique I mean not all surgeons are going to perform it right I'm not saying that he won't be able to do some of the other newer um, techniques that that we've seen lately I think the fact that it's his right leg just gives him a little bit more concern in, in regards just to the power and the drive that he's going to have to push off that foot um, you know first game back first week back of practice that thing I know Rogers was on you know, Pat McAfee saying that he's given Kirk chapter and verse on everything that's been helping him. So we'll see what comes of that. Um, yeah. Daniel Jones, who's been dealing with this neck injury, is now sort of looking like he's cleared, he's coming back, which seemed to coincide very much with, uh-oh, Tyrod went down and Tommy DeVito is the only op other option <laughs> we have. Ah, look, Daniel Jones yeah. is back and healthy. Right. How lucky is that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, is that what we're dealing with here, that the – the need for Daniel Jones to be recovered dramatically increased for the Giants, so it, that's what happened, or is this actually a coincidence that, you know, it happened to time nicely? Well, can I say a little of both, maybe? Because, yeah. you know, to be honest, he probably could have came back yesterday, even from his reports, like he was feeling much better. Um, it did come out that he was dealing with a cervical disc issue, which... Um, if that is pushing out and the, f the fibrous material is touching a nerve in your neck, that's what's giving him like some of the weakness he reported in his hand. That's all gone. Um, he should be healed up. And I mean, unless he gets hit in the neck again or uh, gets slammed to the ground with a violent force to his neck, I don't see him having like any type of setbacks. I feel like it was kind of one of those things like Tyrod played well enough. Right. Let's give you another week to heal. Let's see how he does. If he's stepping his game up, maybe we're just going to sit you longer. Now they have to kind of put him back in anyway with it being <clears throat> daniel jones though like the <laughs> the chances of him taking a hit to the neck or being slammed to the turf you know something that will hurt his neck it's not a small one i mean yeah. that's the way he plays the game with yep. the giants offensive line that only increases it i mean he's him and sam howell were on you know record breaking sack pace over the course of a season yeah um until record-breaking sack pace over the course of a season gets you hurt, you know. So it's it's not a small risk, I guess, for him to take that kind of hit again. Yeah, it's definitely not a small risk. Let's just say he's probably going to look to Saquon for a lot of quick dump-offs and stuff like that because I don't th think he's going to want to sit back in the pocket too long. Um, what happened to Tyrod? I I know he had a rib injury. I know I saw the injury happen, but then it, it sort of – he went to the hospital and apparently was staying there, you know, overnight, which is not – 
like, like not normal, I guess, mm -hmm. for just a general rib injury? They feared um, a pneumothorax, which is when your rib fractures and can puncture your lung. And so what they were doing is they were monitoring overnight to make sure that there was no bleeding or anything like that internally, and just to uh, make sure that he just checked out okay. But that's also another reason why he's not back. So when we've talked about other players that have had like rib injuries, you know, I think of David Montgomery and T Higgins and some of these other guys. Um, when you have that, one of the biggest concerns is it is it in an area that will affect your ribs? Because if you get hit there again and more damage happens, that's that's a really bad situation and you are going to the hospital now if there's any lung damage. So um, that's another reason why Tyrod is not even going to play this week whatsoever he'll be out for a couple so was this um was this a displaced fracture is that why they're concerned about it potentially puncturing his lung yeah and displaced can even be like it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a full fracture but if there is like fragmentation like chip towards, comes off. yeah so that all of that can lead to a pneumothorax and <clears throat> given his track record i mean granted the last one was with a needle right. from a doctor uh i think they just wanted to make sure that it was all okay when we talk about you know fractured ribs what is the percentage like how most of those are just the sort of it's a line on an x-ray as opposed to the thing is snapped in half and you know the ends don't join up anymore yeah a lot of times it's just like the line like what we would consider like a hairline fracture right and then in other cases it's not even necessarily quote-unquote the bone of the rib it's the cartilage which is like what we see from uh, David Montgomery and then Kenny Pickett had some inflammation in his rib cartilage. I mean, granted, he played yesterday, but that was some of the concern with his injury. And that was Herbert last year, right? The Correct. torn, torn or broken cartilage was, yep. I think, how they were terming it, which yep. always sounded a little strange to me. Yep. Um, okay, Matthew Stafford and his injured thumb. Uh, number one, let's get your take on how crazy it was to throw him the Philly special after injuring his thumb. And right. then number two, <laughs> how long is this going to keep him out? Yeah, so, um, yeah, jeez. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what, it's not easy to catch or to or throw a ball. With <laughs> and then it extend. Like, yeah, he, once you caught it, you have to then dive, <laughs> extend it out over the line. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah, but he's – I mean, one, we talked about Stafford just a little bit earlier this year. He's a, he's a tough quarterback. I mean, he's just battled injuries, fractures, everything like that. Um, a UCL injury, which is the ulnar collateral ligament in the thumb, uh, it is – the one that kind of um, will help you grip a ball tighter. And if that's inflamed and damaged, it's going to be pretty hard for him to just really get a good grip on it. Uh, this is what happened with Justin Fields, except he experienced a dislocation of his thumb as well. Uh, and then from experience with my own thumb in injury in football, like this is – this is painful, and it can get inflamed really fast, and it doesn't have to be like something where it's just like load over time. Like it can just be one ball or one snap, and then the wrong position, it will really hurt. So um, I'm just really interested to see what they're going to do. They're probably going to give him a shot. He's going to be taped up and stabilized, and then that will give us an indicator too uh, as he's going through the game on how much that's bothering him because if it's starting to get pretty bad, I wouldn't even be surprised if they take him out of the game yeah i mean it, i i don't know if he's even gonna be playing I know. it sounds it's... a lot like they're preparing for brett rippon to go right. i mean they tried to claim john walford as well uh their former backup slash emergency starter and the bucks had to activate him to keep him on the roster so it sounds a lot like they're preparing you know maybe they'll try and get him ready but the chances are he might not play 
Um, but right. it does make it interesting because Stafford is that, you know, the dude is always out there playing through anything. Like yep. he's, he's on that Brett Favre spectrum of the just resin it up, tape it up. He'll go out and give it a shot and right. see how it goes. And, you know, it might not go great, but he'll give it a shot. Right. Probably better than what they have other options. And, and the other the thing. thing to note about that too, is like, even from a clinician standpoint, when we hear somebody like McVay say he's day to day. You basically might as well just fast forward that and say game time decision, right? Because we really don't know. I have no, I haven't even heard about his progress as far as like the inflammation and pain. So I think we're just going to find out come game time. Um, just a sort of a bigger picture conceptual thing for a second. Um, when you get to decisions like that, how how much control does the sort of medical person have to say no? You cannot play through this. As opposed to the quarterback going, you know, I know I'm hurt. I know I'm injured. I want to play through it anyway. It's, you know, my decision, my body. Like, where's the line there in terms of, you know, having a sort of an almost an ethical obligation to protect the guy from himself and saying ultimately, like, he understands what he's doing. Like, it's his decision. It's his risk to take. Like, what, what right do I have to stop him doing that? Right. That, that does it, there is that line where it's like, well, how much um, is a player going to just push against the medical professional? Um, and even from my experience, normally giving an advice that will be put in the terms of like, hey, this could possibly damage you seriously, they normally listen. Uh, I think where the, the flaw comes is like when the medical professional is kind of teeter-tottering and they'll be like, well, like you could get hurt again, but we right. just need to monitor. Like, a great example, the first thing that came to my mind was Tua with his concussion. Like, clearly there was an issue. Clearly he was warned, like, this could be um, bad with a second concussion syndrome, and then that happened. Uh, but I, I think that um, if it's something that the medical professional will tell you straight up, I don't think this is a good idea. I think you really could be at risk for something worse. More often than not, the player is listening to them. Yeah, I mean, I think concussions are its own sort of weird world where yeah. you almost have to treat that separately from everything else. But with the sort of basic, you know, anatomical injury, it because people like Stafford who have gone out and battled through things that you know no normal person would give a shot to. Like presumably, there's several of those instances where a doctor would be saying. Dude, what are you doing? Stop. Yeah. Like, uh, no, don't go back out there. And he's like, no, we, we can make it happen. And ultimately he goes out and makes it happen. Yeah. Like, I'm curious sort of where the line is between, because like part of this whole drama with Deshaun Watson, right, is he's been technically medically cleared right. for a period of time, but obviously wasn't ready or capable or, phys or able to actually give it a shot. But I would imagine the reverse works as well, where the, mm -hmm. the player is like, no, I can, I can get this done, right? And the doctor's like, no, not yet. Yep. Not now, whatever. Like, they're not letting him go, even though he thinks he can go. And I would imagine, at least in some instances, the player is, I mean, I don't know if he's right, but, like, he is being prevented from making a decision that he's actually aware of all the risks, right. and they're saying no. And you, you, I mean, you said it right. Like, I, they, they're aware of it. But I think some of it has to go also in the situation, like is this a really important game? Are they ahead? Right. Um, playoff run, blah, blah, blah. And the other side of it is the medical professional is gonna know if this is an injury that is severe enough. Like a good example is if somebody has a fractured rib around their lung, like Tyrod Taylor. Something is actually dangerous. If they were like, they're not letting him go back right. in. 
But like with, with Stafford, with some of his back issues that's been going on, if his back is sore and they're checking it out and he's just toughing it out and, and goes back in there, sure, there could be risk for worse back injuries, but it's nothing that we, they're probably sitting there saying this could like end your career, end your season easily. Right. So. Okay. Um, get on to the Darren Waller saga yeah. begins. <laughs> so he's hurt again. Um, what is it this time and how serious are we talking? So he strained his hamstring. They are saying a grade one strain, but his history of hamstring strains have been grade two and above. Uh, he has, this is number four on his right hamstring since he's been in the NFL. He has issues there. And this is the seventh injury of his hamstring and or knee on that side. He's got a lot of issues um, that just from the past with his hamstring that are probably making this timeline um, harder. Even if it's a grade one strain, I don't see him playing this week. But if, if it starts to worsen and they're just not seeing him heal that much, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets an IR slapped on him. It's just with Darren Waller, it seems like it's always like some type of soft tissue injury. He just, he lower extremity wise, he just can't really stay on the field for a full season. If you have, if you have, if you have a player with a history of reasonably severe injuries in one specific muscle, and then the next one that comes along is just a grade one, which is you know the the, the lightest grade, the the easiest, the best uh, injury. Does that automatically, like, are we just putting 150% on any time return timetable that we normally would? Because, like, we know he's messed up that muscle multiple times worse than this before. So it changes the recovery timetable, or do you just treat it as, no, I mean, a grade one is a grade one. It takes the normal time. Yeah, let's just say this. He's not coming back earlier than people would think, right? right? If this was a first injury, sure, sometimes people make comebacks and, and get back earlier. Whereas if it's something that's happened before, you almost would extend that timeline, like you said, because a grade one for somebody who's had four hamstring strains is probably pretty serious at that point, too. And it kind of reminds me of um, uh, like with James Conner right now. James Conner um, hurting his knee, his knee strain, he's coming back from IR. This was his 11th injury on that leg alone since being in the NFL. Wow. 11. Like, that leg is not going to respond. That knee is not going to respond as if this was, you know, his first year back in college and getting a, you know, a, a strained knee. So right. both of those guys, you kind of think about where, well, let's just tag a little bit more time on their injury recovery just because of their history. And then the last thing to look at, we have a series of running backs uh, with ankle injuries. Mm -hmm. Raheem Mostert, Jerome Ford, um, Pierce as well. Yep. So I guess who's furthest along who's where are they all Each i think it's all all of them are going to be in the same category here they are going to be uh probably limited at practice they're going to give it a test run when they go into the game maybe even today friday we're going to find out a little bit more about like what they were able to do sometimes coaches um with certain players say i need them to be on like able to play and run through on Friday for me to suit them up. And sometimes coaches are saying, well, we don't care. Let's just see how they come in. Sometimes that even has to do with if they're a veteran or not. Right. Um, so maybe like somebody like Moster could even hold out until uh, game time. But one of the things that you're, you're dealing with this and even a couple of the injuries last week is we're not really getting accurate descriptions of these ankle sprains. Um, there was a high ankle sprain 
who could be one to four weeks and who knows, right? So these guys uh, just depends on watching their practice and seeing how much they're playing and if they're limited or not. And then also um, one of the big telltale signs is when you see a, a running back who has had an ankle sprain and they go out to the field beforehand, like an hour and a half beforehand, and they're really stressing it and working hard and running through like their ankle drills, they probably are not playing right? Because what they're doing is they're running through their therapy exercises and all of that. They wouldn't go out there an hour and a half before they normally do just to work the ankle that's injured, right? Normally they would go out pregame and do their normal ritual. So that's something also to keep an eye on because you see that a lot on Sundays where they show clips of guys that are running through drills and stuff like that. I remember that with Dak Prescott back in right. the day. And they always claim that it's like that's the test, right? That's like the game time test of can he go or not? <laughs> that's not the test. Okay. Yeah. A lot of times that's just them doing their rehab. The test is going to be like when they get out there, when they're running through drills, when they're doing that, but like, why would they go? So there basically out? is no test. The test is simply they've de they've decided already that you're good to go, and it's only if you break down in the warm up that you're yeah you're not going. And, and maybe a lot like some players will even go out maybe a little bit before like their warm up, like their normal pregame, but like they're not running through an entire hour of working out like an hour and a half before their right. game just so they can sit there and say, I'm good to go. Yeah, so that doesn't really happen. All right, well, that will do it for this cool. week's Boo uh, Boo Breakdown, and it will also do it for the PFF NFL podcast this week. So thank you to everybody for listening, and myself and Steve will be back on Monday. Talk to you then. Thanks.